brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following podcast contains explicit language. Guys, I just found a new podcast to check out, and it is so good. I binged everything you could possibly listen to in like a day. Do we need to set up what the podcast is? That is the lovely, penetrating voice of Esther Perel. I'm a couples therapist. I've been working with couples for almost 35 years. And in those almost 35 years, she's given a lot of viral TED Talks, she's authored best-selling books, and now she's the host of the Audible original podcast that I've been so eager to tell you about. It's called Where Should We Begin? I think that very often couples are quite isolated. We have no idea what goes on in the intimate space of a couple. So Stair realized we are putting so much weight on this one partner, and we do it all alone. And I thought, one way I can really do a kind of relationship public health campaign is to open up my door and to let you hear on the raw, intimate conversations of other couples. And that's what our podcast is. You are a fly on the wall at couples therapy. You realize very quickly that sometimes they give you the words for the conversations that you want to have, even though their situation is completely different from yours. And then, in fact, while you're listening to them, you're standing in front of your own mirror. This is YOY. I'm Andrea Salenzi. And yeah, today's show, I'm going to fangirl about this podcast a bunch. But then I'm going to sneak in some questions that I've been having about my own dating life. Things like, how do you know when you meet the one? How important is really good sex in the early stages of dating? Plus, we have some questions from you guys, too, about dating after infidelity. And so you guys can picture the scene. Esther and I ended up speaking in a different studio than where I usually tape. It was basically a basement inside of an office in Midtown Manhattan. And inside of this darkroom, there were just a few LED lights hanging from the ceiling. But when you are in a room with Esther Perel, even a makeshift studio can feel like the most intimate room in the entire city. So I want to look really close at an episode from season two, episode two. Can you tell us about this couple that met at a masquerade party? Every couple has an origin story. I ask every couple, no matter which state of disarray or distress they arrive in, where did you meet? How did you meet? What drew you to each other? It was at a masquerade party. How did you catch her eye? She had like a a cool confidence about herself. Like Mm -hmm. she just seemed, Mm -hmm. you know. You're drawn to cool confidence? Well, it made me know more nervous because I was used to, to interacting with people who had flaws, but she seemed like like she was comfortable with herself, so I didn't know how to react to that. So it kind of made it interesting for me. Because they were in a masquerade ball, neither really knew the truth about the other. 
but each one could be that which they wanted to be themselves and in the eyes of another. There was this moment for me about 10 minutes into the episode where the wife was talking, and, and here's what she said. I appreciate those words, but it's hard to hear knowing that he doesn't have a desire to do a little bit of work that might be required to repair things that have been so damaged between us. We've had a lot of hurdles, and we came through those hurdles. We didn't come through unscathed. And for me as a single person listening, I felt this sense of, um, when am I going to ever get to do the work, right? All the couples that are coming in to sit with you are making a decision about, this is going to take work. Are you in there for the work with me? But for me, when the work comes up, that's when you usually bail on someone in that kind of pre-marriage, early dating stages. So I've been wondering, should I just start picking fights with guys on first dates as a test? Like, how do I ever get to learn how to be good at that work or know if my future partner is going to be good at that work? Oh, I would say anyway, on a first date, be as original as you can be. Try different things each time and have fun. Just sitting across somebody at a table going through an inventory of questions is often quite dreadful. So on occasion, you can say, let's stage a fight. Let's see how we would do. Imagine us 10 years from now. I mean, this is so much more interesting than why do you work and what do you do and how many, you know, what has been your dating story and do you go on Tinder often and on? You know, it's just, I have a thought, you know, so that we cannot be, you know, so bored and do something completely different. We'll know right away if we're a match or not. That in itself, just the humor you would bring to it. If the person doesn't relate to it and has zero humor, you probably can get up and go. I can't believe you like my idea. <laughs> I think it's a very good idea. But, you know, role playing is one of the first things we do as kids. We love it to be that which we are not, to enter the role of someone we are not and to live in that fictitious reality in which we both know that it is play, but you pretend it is not. Why would adults not have fun doing that without having to be at a masquerade? See, I thought I was just making things harder for myself with my fight example. Aren't I like, causing problems before you actually need them? And you're just saying that if we could go through the motions of a fight, it would be No, play. because you're playing. Yeah. You're not doing an actual fight. You're saying, you can also say, uh, let, let's imagine that we are at a dinner tonight, and instead of it being our first date, we have been together for 25 years. What do you think we would look like? If you have a playmate which I think you seem to want, someone who shares your sense of creativity and mischievous, that would be an amazing moment. And I could only imagine couples telling those kind of stories when they are asked later. So how did you guys meet? She yeah. asked me to perform a fight with her. She thought, why should we you know, skip the preliminaries? Let's go right into it. If we were a couple and we were having an argument, what do you think it would look like? I thought it was a very ori original idea. And for me as a single person listening, I'm just absorbing all these moments like, how can I bring this into my own life, you know, for this imaginary person who doesn't even exist yet? But you may be single today. That doesn't mean you haven't been in relationships. And the people who are in relationships today may be single or widowed tomorrow. So this division between the singles and the married used to be true when people married at 18 or 19 and this was their first partner. Today, we have all been in relationships, short and long term. We all know what it's like 
The fact that these people are married or are longer together adds a dimension. But it's not like you do not have relationship experience. When you just talk about yourself as the single person who is still just trying to date, you don't give credit, probably, to the many other experiences and relationships that you've been in. Right. And you're making me realize how um, when I do listen to your show, you know, I'm both learning about this couple, but the actual learning that's happening is a very internal process where I feel like every couple's representing some micro moment I've lived in my life, some some turn Correct. I've experienced. So I think the division that you draw between, you know, coupled people and the others. Today, you are in relationships, plural, then you're not then you are, and then at some point, hopefully, you make a long run with one person. But that doesn't mean that before that, you haven't had experiences. You have known love, lust, betrayal, sadness, heartbreak, rejection. You've known them all. Can I ask you um, advice as a, as a single person? <laughs> Let's try. So how will I, I know when I meet the one? How do you know? So I'm sorry to tell you, but I'm going to debunk the myth for a bit. Because this pursuit of the one today has come to mean some very particular things. You know, um, the one is the one who's going to cure me of my case of FOMO. Now you are so oh extraordinaire that I no longer think that I could find better. And you are going to finally cure me of the uncertainty and the self-doubt of looking for the one. You also are so special that you are the one for whom I'm going to delete my apps. And the one, when you choose between three people or ten people, is not the same as when you choose between an ocean of people at the tip of your fingers. And the one used to mean God. The one and only. It wasn't the person. So there is no the one. There is someone, a one. And often that a one is at a particular point in time in your life where you say, I'm ready to move from love stories to life stories. And that doesn't mean that you haven't met many a ones before, but you were not ready. They, often people have at least two or three people in their history that they could just as well have been with. But life was at a different place at that time. And so that, that didn't happen which is part of why so many people today reconnect with their exes, because those were the exes with whom they could have been, but I was too young, I still wanted to travel, I still wanted to do some work, you were still in college, I was already out, you know, whatever it is. So my answer to you is, what you know is that you find a person with whom you think you could do a piece of life with, a journey of life. And that person is not only because of how you feel, but also because of what you value. Love stories are more about feelings. The values don't matter that much. Life stories are about vision of life. What do you want in your life? How do you see yourself living? You want kids, you don't want kids. You want to travel, you don't want to travel. You want to, you want to be ambitious, you want to have a big job life, or you want to, you know, where, what do you value? Are you, what are your religious values? What is your relationship to your family? You know, you want to elope, you want to... So all of these things become part of the life story. And that is a decision that you make. Fascinatingly, people always say, how do I know when I found the one? But they don't say, how do I know that this is the person with whom I can be the one? 
about turning it on you. And you also talk a lot about we might be looking for too much in this person. How do we narrow down that list? Today, we think of that long-term partnership as your intellectual equal, your best friend, your co-parent. You're never going to feel alone again. If I were to just narrow down that list to like two things to look for, Can one I, thing to look for. It's not one, It's not about things. It's not about things. This is the inventory mentality. You know, what are my, my three most important priorities on my list? You know, spend time with the person. See how you feel. Watch them interact with other people. Have a first date, not alone. Have a first date with all your friends. You'll see how they relate. If being extroverted, if relating, if connecting to your circle matters, just, you know, if you go to sit outside on a bench, you won't know much. You know, bring them into your home. You'll see how they relate. You'll see what they pay attention to. You'll see what they look at. You'll see what what books they have read. You'll see which paintings they can recognize. All of that. It's really, you know, where do they come from? What are the things that have shaped them? What advice would they give to their 20-year-old self? Ask some interesting questions rather than what do you do and, you know, whatever. What, what subway do you take? Or stuff like that that people just think sometimes it's very important to ask. And then, you know, if you look at your life so far, what are the things that have stood out for you? What are the things that you, that the, the big discoveries that you have made? What are the mistakes that you have made? And see how they think. See how they are able to take responsibility. See how they relate to others. See how they talk about their exes. You know, if they talk about their exes like they're just, there's not an, an iota of anything positive, it's not a good sign necessarily. You know, one day they love those people. So when they did love them, who were they for you? And how were you in relation to them? And if they tell you a story in which it's all the other person that did the bad stuff and they haven't done squat, that's not too good a sign either. This is the way I assess. And then the next thing is, you know, let's go do something and see if I find myself six hours later still with that person when I thought we would just spend an hour together. Then I seem to be enjoying who I am with you. It's not who you are only. It's how I feel about me in your presence. See, I thought you were just going to say something like, like shared. I I hear this stuff all the time. Like, you just find shared values. (laughs) And I just, I, it feels so... Oh, you're right. I need to just think about this more creatively. Do you like the questions? I, I mean, love I can give them. you a, a package I of these. I find them. I, I, one thing I can tell you is you'll have a more interesting time. Yeah. They're more interesting questions. It seems easy to, to love a lot of things about a lot of people. And also, especially in the early stages of dating. There are a lot more people you can love than people you can make a life with. Yes. So that's, you know, you're not, if you're looking for love partners, stories, love stories, novellas, it's a whole different program. If you say, I want to build with somebody and you have someone who has three children and you know that you don't want to enter a relationship where you already, there is a family pre-existing, you kind of have your data. I mean, I'm just giving you one example yeah. like that, but it, it it's like, you know, if if you say, no, I actually would love to take, I don't really want my own children. And I'm very excited to have three children enter my life who are who already have other people caring for them and where I can become a significant person without having to be the biological mother. Then you may be in the right plot. But if you want to be number one and, he, and your partner, she or he, it doesn't matter, comes with three kids and an ex, et cetera, et cetera. Well, maybe you're not in the right story. 
Yes, relationships are stories. Lives are stories. The thing I hear over and over again is you're, you're going to just know. There'll be a spark and you will just know. And it's that easy. <laughs> that Cinderella, you know, what I find extraordinary is that this is spoken by people who think of themselves as wise, clever, uh, you know, sharp, for, for God's sakes. No, you don't. You have a sense. You wonder. Then you check. And then you get a more sense. And then you wonder again. And then you go deeper. And the answers you get is what it gives you. And you thought you were never going to be interested in those kind of people, and here you are. And you thought you were never going to be in someone who is like this, and here you are. Because you remained open and curious rather than actually sitting with your inventory. I think that's the power of the story, too. Isn't it a better story if we just knew? And <laughs> instead of I asked you a million questions and I was pretty satisfied with you wanting a similar life But to you me. see, you've just made it completely ordinary. You've, tr you've taken something that when I told you, you thought was intriguing, and you've just completely flattened it. <laughs> okay, you know, why? <laughs> I asked you a bunch of questions, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a different thing. You know, I decided we would have a very different conversation than the one I was used to have on first dates. Yeah. And I thought, let's keep the immigration status. <laughs> and, uh, and actually, you know, how about we, we, get, we ask each other for the night three questions that we don't typically ask. Gosh, I want to take you on all my dates now. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it. I'm saying this because I have yet to hear people tell me that they love going out on dates and that it's been an extra. They do tell you that they've met many nice people, but the experience seems to be quite exhausting. The thing is, when I break the rules and I start to talk about something deeper, he'll give me a look like, oh, this is it. We're going deeper. This is a really interesting thing yeah. that's happening. And how about it for you? But then if I, I discover I don't want to go down that path with him, then I've... No, no, then you see, interested, <laughs> scared, uh, curious. As I, as I receive more information, I want to run the other direction. And then, well, then you say, <laughs> I guess I got my answer. And then you finish it early and you go home or you go to your girlfriend and you, you, know, you commiserate. But I mean, you know, there's two ways, it's like in therapy, there's two ways to get a diagnosis. One is you collect information, you collect information. And on the basis of all the data, you say, I think what may be going on is. The other one is you make an intervention. And then the response to the intervention is the diagnosis. Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah. Mom and kids or dad and kids or partners can't talk to each other. Okay, they can't talk to each other. So now we have the information. So now I say, how about you talk about something together, not a big subject, but I would like you to discuss with each other, you know, how you're going to deal with the sense that you both have that things have not been fair. That's an intervention. And on the basis of how the conversation goes, I will know a lot. And how about instead of going out, you cook together? It's an interesting thing. I mean, come on, how many couples have fights about the kitchen? Right. So you cook together and you see what it's like to cook together. I just can't imagine making it through a meal. I mean, I hear this over and over again that people know in the first five seconds if this is going to be a good date. And it makes sense that once you get there and you're like, oh, I want to get to know this person, then let's cook together. But right, it's right. hard to. So the no is easy. Yeah. But you no didn't ask really me easy. how do you know that it's not the right person. You <laughs> asked me how do you know it is 
the person you want to be with. And that is on the basis of experiencing things together. Not just knowing, not just sparking, not just having the hottest sex in the world. Yeah. How does sex is one experience, but it comes it comes in a context. If you ask me, how do you know it's not the right person? That takes five seconds. It's the others. Yeah. You didn't ask me, how do you not know? You said, how do you know? And the how do you know is much more subtle and doesn't instantly jump up like that. So, uh, but then, uh, how important is really incredible good sex at the early stages of dating? Couldn't that misdirect you in some ways because, you know, you're you're just blissing out on on all of this? Sexuality is very important, but it is not the end and be all. And if you have not had a good experience and you meet someone and you feel for the first time that you connect erotically, sexually, in powerful ways like you haven't had in so long, Yes, in this relationship, this is going to be very important. If you've actually had good connections, then the fact that this is a good too is nice, but it's an addition. It's not a central piece. What you experience in one relationship, the meaning that it gets is dependent of the relationship that preceded it. And on your history altogether. It does not exist for its own sake. If you come from a relationship where you couldn't talk, then talking to this new person has 10 times more importance because it is based on the fact that you come from talk starvation. If you come from a really, you understand, if you come from sex starvation and you have a powerful intimate connection with this person, it will mean a lot more because you remember that this can actually be the case. The value of something is predicated on the context in which it happens. And the context isn't just what's going on between you and the person you're with right now. Right. That's my answer to your question. For some people, it is very central. For other people, it's okay, it's nice, it's a good thing to know. But no, being with someone who's caring, kind, giving, generous, attentive, listens well, is more important. And they're willing to make the compromise around the sex. And maybe they're making the compromise around the sex because the previous one was a perfect, wonderful lover, but couldn't listen, couldn't this, couldn't that, you know. So you you really need to understand that we are contextual beings and things happen in context and the importance of them depends on, on the larger picture, not just on the what's right in front of you. So in my dating life as a single woman, I feel these dynamics playing out all the time where Sometimes a guy will look at me like I'm just trying to trap a boyfriend, you know, and and I look at him like, oh, you just want to hook up with me. And these these are just feel like such tired dynamics. Do you ever say it out loud? No, <laughs> that sounds fun, though. I would just say, you know what I was thinking? Is this one of those where I think you just want to do this and you think I just want to do that and we're each spending time in the other person's head? But on the yeah. basis of his response, you will know if you like the guy or not. I mean, just that kind of a comment to me, how he would respond or she would respond would be, you know, very telling. <laughs> Do you have humor? Can you, are you, you know, are you quirky? Are you quick? Imagine that those are things that are important, you know, to me, they matter. So I would say something like that, not because I care about what I say, but I care about seeing what the, rea- what the reaction would be. Interesting. A lot of your research into female desire is, has found that those tired assumptions that I'm experiencing in my dating life aren't necessarily true, that actually women tire of monogamy faster than men. 
that women don't always get what they want out of commitment. This is actually based on the research of a dear colleague of mine, Marta Mayana. There are a number of major women researchers at this point that study the nature of women's sexual desire. She's one of them. And um, I think that when we say it like that, I said it a bit facetiously, but I think it, it's worth it to unpack this. You know, what does it mean? It means that we have historically seen women's desire as more discriminate than men's desire. If a woman wants a man or a woman, it is pretty clear that it is him she wants. But we see male desire as more indiscriminate. Hence, if a man wants a woman, she wants to know it is her. Prove it. What are you willing to do for me to know it's me? Hence, the famous formula of the erotic equation of Jack Morin, attraction plus obstacle equals excitement. It's the obstacle. What is a novel? A novel is a whole story about an obstacle, and at the end, they meet. No, 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 not until the third date. <laughs> oh, no, no, what will your friends think? Yes, yeah. or they missed each other, or they were, they, you know, he showed up, she wasn't there. I mean, the whole story of the novel is the series of obstacles. And while the obstacles are, are being removed, the excitement keeps going. And at the, and the end of the story is just the denouement of attraction plus obstacle equals excitement. So if women say to the partner, to the male partner in this instance, prove it to me, prove that it's me. Often, when she used to be less responsive sexually, we, the tendency was to say, well, it's because she's not interested in sex rather than considering that perhaps she's perfectly interested in sex, she's just not interested in the sex she can have. And we have misinterpreted women's interests and desires with the lack of desire. So when women have the commitment and he's there and he wants her because it's her, he do, it's not his issue, by the way, it's really her issue. She kind of says, it's it, you want it, not me. The misinterpretation that may have happened is that when women lose interest in their partner, we have traditionally seen it as women have less interest in sex. We could also see it, maybe more accurately, that women have plenty of interest in sex, but they have less interest in the sex they can have. That women know what excites them, but women tend to choose more what they value than what they like, what they feel makes them secure, what they give, what will give them stability, is more important than what turns them on. Part of courtship, there are these necessary stages before you've reached monogamy, where there isn't a commitment yet, and you're still kind of getting to know each other, asking each other all the right questions. Do you have thoughts about treating fidelity in those stages where you you don't know how many hinge dates he's going on that week or? whatever. Look, there is no set way of doing it. By definition, relationships are process of iteration and reiteration. At some point, you feel like you're comfortable enough and you just say, can I ask you something? You know, while you're meeting me, are you still meeting others? Or, you know, I stopped seeing others. I think I'm getting close. I'm you know, you kind of occupy my mind. I'm not 
thinking anymore about going elsewhere. Tell me something. How will we know the day we both put our apps aside? You know, uh, do you think we will tell it or do you think we will feel it? There's a whole set of conversations. Of course, they are uncomfortable. They are vulnerable. They are tense because that's the nature of the beast. Those are the vulnerable moments. Do you like me as much as I think I like you? Or you seem to like me more than I like you. Or you seem to want to go faster and deeper than I am thinking of because I'm not so sure of you and yet you seem to be more sure of me. These, these iterations have been part of the making of relationships forever. No digital is changing that. Ah. Just every time you come up with an example question, it's worded and just said in just such a better way than all the other millions of ways that it comes to me naturally. I just don't know how you do it. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's exactly what you meant when you said theater. I'm imagining myself in the situation, how I would say it, what I would say, you know. And I would say, you know, this is those weird moments, right? We were supposed to be talking about. I'd, I'd, be, I'd make a meta comment about the comment to kind of, or I wouldn't, depending on how, how intimate and close I feel in the moment. And I would just say, you know, this is the, the way you've just looked at me. This is the moment where I want to say, you know, I'm not thinking about another anymore. Or you sometimes say, you know, tell me something. I know you were for so many years with your ex-girlfriend. How present is she still for you? I'm asking, this is, uh, you don't owe me squat. You don't owe me anything. Those are not moments where people have any obligation. But how we slowly begin to feel that a boundary is being created around us that says a couple is in formation. A relationship is about to happen. And blossoming love is often quite exclusive. At the moment when you are honing in on someone, that's what you're doing. And you're not thinking about 10 others at that time. If you're thinking about 10 others at that time, you're not honing in. Generally, if you like someone, it used to be anyway, that then you pursued it to explore it and to see. There was no need to go see if there are three others that you like. You like, then follow it. See what happens. You know, but at this moment, it's like I need a certainty in order to decide if I like it enough to pursue it. And that certainty you won't get. There isn't one at that stage. This is a very interesting thing, is that people are willing at the same time to live with a level of freedom that is utterly unprecedented, you know, where you can literally, you know, dive into an archive of, of, of thousands of people. But, but that comes with self-doubt and uncertainty. You can't at the same time have the massive amount of freedom and have a, a, a complete, you know, exquisite certainty at the same time. That doesn't work. So you do because you say, this intrigues me. I like it. I like him. I found that there was something there. I don't know what. I'm meeting him again. And if I meet him again on Tuesday, I don't need to make another date with somebody else for Thursday. There's lots of other things you can do on Thursday. See what happens. By, by Tuesday night, you'll know if you want another Tuesday. And if you want another Tuesday, then stick to that. And then at some point, you either say, no. Nah. No, and then you can continue with your Thursdays. But if you want to do it both at the same time, you are completely preventing the exploration. You want certainty, and I'm saying you can't have any certainty. But what you can have is discovery. Yeah, but the thing I, I see 
myself and my friends doing is you come up with all these preventative measures so you don't catch feelings, so you so you stay cool and you're just the cool girl. Or you, yeah, you'll intentionally schedule another date just to kind of to cut yes, the intensity. And I, I think that you know it, it's an extraordinary thing to see so many people today be so afraid to experience the vulnerability of love, of, of connection. People find more security in an MBA than in a relationship. I mean, you, you know, it's amazing that so many relationships even get formed. But that is the nature of the beast. When you begin to like someone, they have, your de a dependency is created. They have power over you, not to do bad things. It's just it's the nature of the fact that you like someone. And when you like someone, it has power over you. And, and then from there, you continue and you explore and you sense and you go. This is the, the dance that I have always thought of. But at this moment, people are willing to just kind of say, you know, I'm, I, I'm tough. I have no feelings. Nothing reaches me. And then they ask me, how do I find the one? So, of course, they want the one to be the one that pierces through all their defenses. It has nothing to do with the person you enjoy being with. It has to do with the person who is who is so God knows what that that person is going to pierce through all your walls of your defenses and your fears. You can't ask that of another person. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily happen. Wow. Did you guys hear that? People find more security in an MBA than a relationship. I'm curious what you guys think. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, we have some listener emails that I'm going to run by my guest, Esther Perel. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. And we're back with Esther Prell, author of The State of Affairs. Before our interview, I did a call out to YY listeners, and we asked you guys how infidelity has impacted your dating lives. And now I'm going to read one of the emails that came in from a listener named John. Here's what he wrote. I'm a 63-year-old male, overeducated. At 20, I was undereducated and in love with someone three years younger than me. After she turned 18, she moved in with me. I'm still in love with this woman, but I came home one night and I found her in bed with my our roommate. I still carry a torch for this woman, despite the reality that we have been married to other people for 30 in her case and 20 years in my case. What the fuck? I will go to my grave wondering why. So many things, life events, played out the way they did. So I asked Astaire, what would she tell John? Well, I would ask John, you know, before I tell, I always ask. I don't just proclaim things. And I would ask John, what does he think about when he thinks of her? Is it the person? Is it the situation? Is it how he felt? Slighted, betrayed, rejected, diminished, humiliated? 
And if, is it that he would like to go and see if she made a better life without him? Is it that he wants to go and show her what nice of a life he made for him and she missed out? Is it that there was something in the way that they connected that still, till today, had a level of depth and purity or something that he still at times can pine for? Is it because in that moment he was made to feel so small? And who was this roommate? Is it because it was his first love and his heart had opened up and from that day on he's never ever opened himself again like that? And from there I will have something to say. Another listener, Jill, met her ex-husband when he was dating another woman. And he cheated. And she writes, so you could argue that what goes around comes around or that I should have known once a cheater, always a cheater. So she writes that even consuming pop culture is sometimes hard. She has a hard time with stories that involve gratuitous infidelity. She worries about the partner who's left behind. But then she says, like, who am I? Who am I to say? So is there a way for her to feel permission to, as someone who was once involved in an infidelity, to be upset about the infidelity that happened in her marriage? Of course. Of course. I mean, we are not rational people. You know, when we did it, it meant something else. Maybe he wasn't seeing that other woman for so long. Maybe he was already on his way out. Maybe he had discovered in her the love of his life. You ask me why relationships are stories. Isn't that what we tell? So, you know, maybe he was cheating, but what was she doing? She was competing. She was thinking, I'm better than the other one. I'm the chosen one. God knows. I don't have any idea what exactly went on for her. But the notion that you know, she got it coming, that it was punitive, that, it, you know, of course, it was meant to be on her. And maybe the other woman actually wished that on her. Yes, we are often thinking about vengeful thoughts. We often hope that the other one will experience the pox on both your houses. And all of that is part of the human drama. Is she allowed to feel bad about affairs because she was involved in one? Yes, absolutely. Come on. It's not like she suddenly has been deprived of any uh, indignation because she was part of one. She needs to be responsible and think about, you know, yes, I've actually been on both sides of this story. When it suited me, I looked at it one way. When I was on the other side, I looked at it completely differently. And I have in me the ability maybe to identify with all the protagonists of this triangle because I've been all three. I've been the other woman. I've been the wife. And that is what actually is true for a lot of people is that they have often experienced this drama, this crisis, this experience from all angles. They've been the child of, they've been the friend of, they've been one of the key people in the triangle. And use that to actually broaden your understanding and the complexity of this whole thing, rather than either judge others or judge yourself. And, you know, she's got to move on because there's some great media out there about affairs, I hear. There's a really good TV show, I think, on Showtime. Which I am the, I've been the consultant of for season one and two, yes. <laughs> there's uh, my book, yeah. The State of Affairs. She's missing out on a lot. And I think, you know, there, there's a way that you could find this really fascinating. But there is a sense of, I cannot be upset about this because I myself once did it. Of course you can be upset. And you've did it. And you need to deal with the fact that you have done contradictory things. And you have to be accountable for that. And this is true around infidelity and it's true around other aspects of life. 
other people feel that because I was the partner for whom you left someone else, I owe you more. We have to be the perfect relationship. Or maybe I have to worry, would that happen to me as well? Or, you know, was I that unique or were you just simply an unfaithful person? And then last we heard from a listener named Mark. He's co-parenting with his former partner who cheated on him. And he worries that a woman would never be attracted to all his baggage. Do you have advice for someone who says that they've given up on dating because loneliness feels safer? Oh, that is so painful. No, people, women will not. uh, Actually, some women will have experienced some similar baggage and you will find great comfort in meeting someone else who who knows of your experience and who wants to create a more secure and protected relationship in which such betrayals or breaches won't happen. Sometimes women will actually really fancy you because you actually are able to co-parent very nicely with your ex and you seem to have been able to go and beyond this this crisis for yourself. This idea that um, that this is baggage, it's life. And people, the older you get, everybody has life. Don't think you're the only one with baggage and you're that special. The women you may meet have baggage too, different baggage. And different baggage, baggage is not always negative. Baggage is the place from which you draw your resources, from which you draw your strengths, your lessons. And for your children to see you reconnect with someone else and love again and be joyous may be way more important than the, the fortress that you're building around your loneliness. So we shouldn't give up on dating? You shouldn't give up on loving. I don't care if it comes through dating or another route. It's the, the date is just the gateway to something. You know, the love, the building together, the sharing of one's life with someone, the being able to have someone to have that has your back, the trusting experience, the, you know, that whole thing. That is what you're going for. The dating is just a means. I've been speaking with Esther Perel. Her new book is The State of Affairs. And YY listeners, I cannot recommend her podcast enough. It's called Where Should We Begin? And the first season is available now wherever you get your podcasts. And the second season, I get it on my Audible app by linking up my Amazon Prime account with their app. And oh my gosh, there's some doozies in season two. It is so good. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. so much out of this conversation like even that moment at the end so we shouldn't give up on dating you shouldn't give up on loving maybe I get too focused on dating sometimes she makes it sound fun on occasion you can say let's stage a fight let's see how we would do and next week I'm talking to another sex therapist Chris Donahue he co-hosts the Loveline podcast with Amber Rose and when I name-dropped Esther to him, he had a strong reaction. Well, you know what Esther Perel told me? I just interviewed oh, her the other go. Go, other day. Are you guys here buddies? We well, here's the thing. Look, let, let's actually have an honest conversation about this for a second. So Esther Perel and me are, we're buddies. I'll use that word. I think her work is really important and really valuable, but I have a big problem with a couple points she made in her newest book. I really do. So that's next week. We're going to hear Chris Donahue's issues with Esther's book, his advice for my dates, and more. And I don't get this at all, but he even had a problem with the pick a fight on your first date advice. 
That's not real. That's not real. That's not real. If I was sitting with you, let's say we go on a date, me and you, okay? So <clears throat> you say, let's play a game, and you say, 20 years from now, I would stop you and say, you know what? We are always changing. I have no idea who I'll be in 20 years. I have powerful, amazing life events that happen, and I, I couldn't ever speak to that. Okay, but I am curious what you guys think. Would this question work on your first dates? I dare you to try it out on your next date and report back. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at my full name, Andrea Salenzi. So we're going to take one more break. And when we get back, we have the weirdest blind Skype date that our team has ever recorded. And now, at last, it is time for another blind Skype date. Today's date is between Mark and Jessica. He's 37 years old, she's 35 years old, and they both live in Boise, Idaho. Mark kicked off the conversation with a real weird question, one he considers his ultimate deal breaker. It's a little random, but it's pretty important. And I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the Despicable Me film franchise. Oh, uh, okay. Um, I've seen the first one, and I thought it was adorable, and I laughed and cried. And I don't think I've seen any of the others. Uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Is this a- is this like an obsession with you, or you hate it, or what's the deal? Uh, women who enjoy that film, I I usually can't can't relate to. You can't relate to women who enjoy Despicable Me. Is that the? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I can't I can't deal with it. It's like your Burning Man question. <laughs> that's the one. That's the determiner that so kind of in the case. Wow, that's interesting. So what is it that you don't like about Despicable Me? Have you seen them all? Oh, no. I I could barely get past the first one. And I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know. I don't remember the circumstances where I had to watch it, but I watched it, and I thought, that's probably the, one of the worst films I've ever seen. Wow. Wow. And it, was, it was violent, and I guess there was an okay message, but I couldn't believe that I just watched that. I don't know. That's such an intense reaction to a pretty, I don't know, harmless movie. Wow. <clears throat> Interesting. Do Are there other animated films that you like? Uh, you know, Monsters Incorporated is I, probably top 20 films I've seen. Uh, Mike, I think she's getting tired. The Incredibles is pretty good. Are you doing anything later? I have a previous engagement. I also like uh, Sleeping Beauty. That's a good one. Away with him. But gently, my pets. Gently. Um, <laughs> a classic. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with animated films. Hello. Mm. <laughs> hey, oh, catch up, Marky. <laughs> Do you don't think it's adorable with the tiny little children and how they come to love him? Is this just making, it's just like driving you crazy or like, no, this is my least favorite thing in the world. I don't know. Yeah, a lot of my, like, male friends. They all also hate Despicable Me? Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's an inside joke. You know, if, if one of one of them meets a woman and and someone says, "Oh, I bet you she likes this big old me," and then it's over with. Oh my god! Wow, that's hilarious. Um, yeah, I thought it was fine. Liked it. Laughed. Cried. Wow. <laughs> Didn't have any particularly strong feelings. But what do you have? Uh, favorite films? Like a top five that are the ones that you go, yeah, that's a really good film. I'm not a big film fan, but I do ha- do keep a list of the top 100 films that I've watched in my lifetime. And I think I think right now that the top one on there is I think it came out in 1932, All All Quiet on the Western Front. It's probably like the furthest you can get from Despicable Me. <laughs> It is, yes. Like, uh, what's the opposite of Despicable Me? Either Saw 5 or yeah. <laughs> All Fight on the Western Front. These are like yes. polar opposites. <laughs> Do you want to keep talking then, or uh, should we just hang up now? What? No, no, no. no. no I'm, <laughs> I'm okay with your answer. No. It, it's, just, okay. it's, just, it's just an inside thing. that It's, it's, it's important, but we'll go through. So the date continued until Jessica made another grave mistake with her taste in media. I'm not into the, the like I think you you use the term magical realism. Yes, it's a, it's a little turn off, a little bit. Then Mark had a proposition for her. So uh, if you want, you can you can stalk me all you want, and like find out more about me. <laughs> okay, appropriate, acceptable online levels of stalking, not like creepy, find out all the places you've ever lived, and contact your mother's talking. Right. Okay. Okay, sounds good. (laughs) So here's what happened next. Jessica never actually stalked Mark. Instead, Mark jumped the gun and stalked her until he found her email address and sent her a note. Jessica was a bit weirded out. She didn't even realize her email was online anywhere, and he apparently found it in an old CV. Needless to say, Jessica and Mark never met up. Our show is produced by me, Andre Salenzi, with Lindsay Cradwell. Our editor is Hilary Frank. Our artwork changes every week thanks to Teddy Blanks at chips.nyc. Our theme music is by Andy Miklas, Casey Holford, Lee Rosphere, and Evan Viola. Special thanks to Mila Bell and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Next time on YOY, sex therapist Chris Donahue knows how to charm a podcast host. I'm setting you up with my brother. Is he in New York? He's in Philly. <laughs> yeah. And now, as promised, a sneak peek at a recent episode of the new Panoply podcast, Family Ghosts. Greetings, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. So, I'm sitting at my desk at my old job when I get a text from my friend Nick Markovich. And the text says, Hey, want to take off work tomorrow and be one of my lifelines on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I'll give you half of whatever I win. Our next contestant is from Croton on Hudson, New York. 
please welcome Nick Markovich. At the time, I was an administrative assistant, and my job the next day was to hand out lanyards at an all-day strategy summit about digital advertising. And for reasons still unknown to me, I chose that over going with Nick to hang out with Terry Crews. All right, Nick Markovich has walked with $68,600. Thank God everybody at that summit got a lanyard. A few months ago, I received another text from Nick indicating that he had a pitch he thought might work for Family Ghosts. To quote from the message, my grandfather's body is missing because my aunt stole it. Let's see. I mean, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in treat yourself mode. You know my, you know my vacation style. But I'll, I'll leave a call to you. So, having learned by now that when Nick sends a text, there's usually a good story not far behind. I met him at a restaurant and asked him to expand on his message. You want to do that apple crisp? Yeah. So we did that crisp, and while we did, Nick explained that what he said in the message is basically all he knows. When his grandfather died. His aunt took possession of the body and, well, it somehow vanished. And it's been eating at Nick, not to mention the rest of his family, for years. No one in my family knows where he is, so we can't pay our respects. And we know he ended up in the family plot. We don't know where she put him. I hate to go all Fargo on this, but we don't know if she put him in a wood chopper. (laughs) I say, I'm joking about this because it's so absurd. But it's, it also hurts, because I have very much love for my grandfather. Um, is that help? This is amazing. Okay. I have so many questions. Okay. Sure. I'll bet you can guess what my first question was. Have you asked your aunt? But the aunt is unfortunately dead. And when she died, she took the answers to the other questions with her. So this week on the show, we're going to try to find Nick's grandpa. From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 3, Sue's Clues. Hear what happens next. Go subscribe to Family Ghosts in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.